Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast. Every week, me and my girlfriend go back and forth picking movies, trying to expand each other's horizons, or really make them watch stuff we really don't like. Hey, I'm Dean. This is Boo. Boo, how are you? I am doing good today, especially since today's my pick. It is. And I didn't really have to fight you on it. No, no, you didn't have to fight me on this one. Um, I'm generally a fan of most movies you pick, but you've, uh, you've picked some rough ones. Oh. I mean, really? Out of the two of us, I've picked the rough ones? All my movies are fantastic. I don't know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, but you can't really give me that whole, like, shitting and grin look because we're an audio podcast. No one knows you're doing that. You know I'm doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, what are we watching this week? Today, we're watching a classic. And, I mean, I know I call a lot of our movies classics because that's how they feel to us. But yes. this is a true film classic. We're watching uh, Nicholas Ray's Rebel Without a Cause. So excited to finally talk about this movie. Yeah, this is your this is your favorite movie. At least it was your favorite movie when we met. I assume it still is. It still is. It's my all-time favorite movie. I could watch this whenever. Still hits me in the feels. It's a really good movie. All right, all right. Um, this is also, I believe, the oldest one we've listened to. Yeah, so far this is the oldest movie that we've talked about. It just turned 65 in November. November 24th, 1955, so yeah, mm. so it just turned 65, and I also chose to do it this week because it's also the anniversary of James Dean, his birth, so he would have turned 90 this year. Wow. Yeah, so... And your grandfather is 93, older than yeah. So your grandfather's older than James Dean. More he is. More. So, happy birthday, James. Happy birthday, Jimmy Dean. So yeah, um, well, let's kind of get into it so i know you enjoy asking the question of when was the first time you've seen this yeah what's this mean to you yeah but i think i'll take that that uh hat for right now okay so when was the first time you saw this movie first time i probably saw it was in high school i think maybe when i was a sophomore or a junior it was just on uh, turner classic and i was watching it late at night and i saw it and i was like wow this this movie just blew my mind it's amazing mm. And also, you know, having to sit there and watch James Dean for like an hour and a half, you really don't have to twist my arm to do that. As as a, like, teenage girl, you were very much okay with this? Very much okay with this. But of course, but of course. Okay, so what, what is it about the movie that kind of stuck with you? I mean, apart from looking at James Dean for a couple of hours? Look, like, I'll put it to you like this. There's some movies with some very attractive people in them, but those aren't your favorite movies usually your favorite movies are ones that kind of speak to you a little yeah. bit more than man he's just so dreamy it's really an intriguing story because he is our protagonist throughout the movie but it's also the story of his uh, side characters like uh, judy played by natalie wood and um, plato played by salminio so we're all getting you know, different stories within this one main story. So it's kind of interesting to jump from uh, Jim's story to Judy's story to Plato's story and to see how they all, you know, mingle together and their one giant story at the end of the film. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, it, it, it all gets sets up in like the first couple scenes, right? Yeah. That these are main characters, these are the ones we're going to have to follow along with plato i think is a very interesting character he is um we'll we'll get into him in a, in a minute 
Um, but let's talk about the, I guess, the two leads who are probably the most famous people to come out of this movie, James yep. Dean and Natalie Wood. Yep. And so I understand why James Dean is considered an amazing talent that we lost too soon because yeah. his acting in this movie is fantastic. Um, I haven't, I mean, he's only, he only did like what, four movies? He did movies? three movies. He did three movies before he passed? Yeah. So, I mean, I've seen this movie two, three times now, mm -hmm. four times now. Um, but I haven't seen Giant, and what was the other film he, he did? Oh, East of Eden. East of Eden. I haven't seen those before. Those but are I've seen really good movies. Them. Yeah. Um, and Brando came before him, right, in terms of, like, their, their like, career. He's, he broke a little bit earlier? Yeah, he broke a little bit earlier. Brando also tested for this movie, and in an original script, he was the lead for this movie, and they, they switched it up, and I think... I don't know if it was because he was doing Streetcar. They couldn't film that original story or something had happened. So Brando kind of, you know, let go of the role. Yeah. So it would have been a very different, you know, movie with Brando. Story-wise and... And character-wise. Yeah, yeah. Well, the reason I bring it up is because I feel that James Dean and Marlon Brando came, come from like that same school of acting... Very naturalistic, very method, things like that. Yeah. And in Rebel Without a Cause, since it was done like 55, he's, at that point, he's one of the few actors who are, who are still doing, who's doing that. And it feels like every scene he's in with another character, he is like way up here and everybody else is just kind of like. Oh, yeah. Still doing old, like, um, theater shtick kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, I, I saw like a. Like, one of these documentaries about the movie and the making of the movie. And uh, they're talking about Natalie Wood, how she was just so intimidated by him because of his acting caliber. Considering that Natalie Wood has been in the business longer than he had, because she was in Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah, she was like a child star. So, she's, you know, been in the business, been in a ton of movies, but she just didn't harness the talent, that the raw talent that he had. Because yeah. he went from... I think he did plays in high school to UCLA when he was really, you know, part of, like, the theater department. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he did it with school, not like her, where she's just, you know, she landed these roles and she worked her way through the ranks of Hollywood. He just kind of broke into it and it was amazing right off the bat. It was a thing where she came, well, she came from that old school studio system, right? Yeah. Because what? Because she got started when she was like what seven, eight. Because I know she started acting when she was like super young. Yeah, she was little and miracle on thirty fourth. Uh, yeah. But, so so maybe around five to eight years old. Yeah, and how old was she in in this film? She was I think sixteen. Okay. So she was the closest. Her and uh, Salminio were the closest to their characters' ages. Mm -hmm. And I know with her. She had a hard time landing her role because she's been in Hollywood and she's always been, like, the good girl. And this one, they wanted, like, you know, a wild teenager. So she was trying to convince, you know, Nicholas Ray, you know, hey, I can be this person. He's kind of like, you know, no, you know, you're a little too nice. Maybe another part. And she went out with uh, Dennis Hopper. And they just had, like, a wild night out on the town. Ended up getting into a car accident. And I guess she called and said, you know, Hey, I'm in the hospital, you know, can you either come visit me? Or someone said, hey, she's been injured. 
And one of the doctors said, you know, yeah, you know, the, these hooligans, you know, were out it, or hoodlums were out it, you know, causing trouble. And she goes, you see, they called me a hoodlum. Now can I be in your movie? And he was kind of like, all right, you, you convinced me. So I guess. I mean, I'm so that's just... one way of doing it. Well, okay. Well, I was just putting it like this to kind of get get back to like my point is that she came up with that old Hollywood system yeah. of, of like actors where you were in a stable. You went to very specific acting classes. You learned how to sing, dance, to do mm -hmm. a bunch of different things. Um, it's the thing that happened with... Um, like Judy Garland. Like where... Judy Garland, Mickey yeah. Rooney, things like that. Where you got in when you were like a child star. They put you through the system. And yeah. when you came out, you could do... I, I mean, I guess at this time, do like TV. Or you were in like little like kid musicals like reels things like that you, you were an a-list actor because you can do just about everything you were a jack of all trades well yeah that was the thing you yeah. could do musicals you can do dramas you can do comedies mm -hmm. you couldn't you weren't gonna be like brando who could you know take you on a ride with his character he, you're not gonna you're not gonna do stanley from streetcar named desire i mean face it nobody is brando except brando i know but james mm -hmm. dean makes a pretty good good oh, run yeah. at it but that's the thing and in this film, I feel that every time Natalie Wood and James Dean have a conversation on screen, everybody just does, it doesn't look right because James Dean just feels like his character, whereas yeah. everybody else feels like they're playing a character, right? Oh yeah, I mean, James Dean was super method ahead of his time. And that's why I love his movies, because he really becomes these characters that the movies feel real. Mm -hmm. That's why I really suggest you know, that you watch next, maybe uh, East of Eden. Because Giant is amazing. Giant's a good movie if you have a lot of time to sit there. They think it's like a two-hour movie. Well, this is like a two-hour movie. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's shy. It's, it's yeah. shy from two hours. It's shy, but, it's... but Giant, you know, goes from, you know, the span of him being uh, poor and living, you know, trying to hit, hit it rich with oil to you know him being an old man so this movie we're just getting the span of 24 hours so it's not 24 hours is it's it? 24 hours oh then i got issues with this movie yeah this this movie is over the course of 24 hours from when they find jim asleep on the street that's supposed to be 3 a.m and then the movie ends around dawn the next day so this is all over the course of one day I got issues then. You always have issues. I, okay, if that's the case, then then. But let me reel Jim... it back. I think you really need to watch East of Eden because. Oh, I probably will. Because honestly. if you love the method acting that he does in this movie, I mean, you're gonna be able to pull stuff from that movie that he does in this movie, hmm. like uh, when he cries at the end of the movie. Yeah. He does the same thing in East of Eden with uh, his father, and you just see that he is just so distraught. He is so broken, and he's. To the point where he can't even articulate. It's just your body is just reacting because you're just so upset. So I recommend it to you. So for those who don't move, for those who don't know, the Boo is obsessed with James Dean, and this is going to become a three-hour James Dean podcast. Hey, I mean, my favorite movie, my favorite actor. Yeah, I get, gotcha. You know, I will give you free reign when it's Tommy Wiseau Day. Oh, I can't wait! It's coming up, boys. But here's the thing. The film itself, I I enjoyed it. Like, don't get me wrong. It's, you know, it's a good movie. It's not bad by any stretch of the definition. But 
now knowing that it takes place over 24 hours, because I thought it was like, oh, movie magic. It takes place over the course of like a week or whatever, and it just cuts around. No, it's one day. Then the escalation of events is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. It's one wild day. Yeah. And I'm like, this does not make any logical sense for for this to take place over the course of one day in a normal universe but not but again it's one of those things where everything else around it i can i can just dig with and it's fine i mean it's also a cinematic universe where you know oh yeah this there's, is there's no you know i really have to eat or have to go to the bathroom or go to all my classes it's no i understand yeah, that so. it's a, i understand that it's completely fictitious yeah but it's one of those things where knowing that it takes place over 24 hours my god this story is wild as hell yeah but then again you know like that's clerks you know it takes place over one day and the movie is ridiculous so i really shouldn't be like that concerned about it but yeah i mean considering considering how much you love clerks and we haven't done a clerks episode yet well, I mean, I don't know if I love Clerks, but Clerks is a good movie. Well, Clerks is a fun movie. I enjoy watching it. Mallrats is great. And Dogma is, like, legitimately, legitimately, like, Kevin Smith's masterpiece. Yeah. Like, that is, that's, like, a legitimate, like, good movie. It's right up there with Jersey Girl. I can't believe you like Jersey Girl. It's a good story. It is like seeing Ben Affleck. And, you know, the relationship with him and his daughter is cute, and, you know... Uh... And J-Lo dying at the beginning... That was heartbreaking. I'm a J-Lo fan, so it was hard to see her die. Yeah, yeah. Jenny from the Block fans over here. But, so yeah, let's. I guess let's get into like, a little bit more of the movie proper. Because we talked about a little bit James Dean's acting, a little bit Natalie Wood, her acting. Yeah. Um. So, this movie, I found something kind of interesting about some of the themes that were going on in it. Okay. So, I felt like a major theme of this movie was masculinity. Yeah. And kind of the resentment of lack of masculine figures in in the film um i can i can elaborate on this because it might sound like i'm i'm just being a hashtag dude bro no you're not that's totally one of the the big uh plot points in this movie yeah because it's like jim he's resentful that his father's basically whipped like his his mom is obviously the one calling the shots his dad kind of doesn't have a backbone also his dad's played by, by mr howell right from gilligan's island mr howell and also mr, mr. Magoo. Magoo. yes also fantastic i totally missed that the first time i saw this movie but i love gilligan's island yeah so he's resentful that his dad is this kind of girl like a girly you know he's a girly man because you know arnold <laughs> but he, like he's not very masculine his mom takes up everything um then and have- also they don't listen to him well, they don't listen to him. He's resentful that his parents are, you know, parents, for God's sakes. You know, They're I parents, but they're also so busy arguing over what's best for him. And he's trying to step in and say, you know, hey, if you'd listen to me for like five minutes, I could tell you what I really need. Well, the other thing is they're, he's it's like the 30-year-old teenage son is yelling at them. Yeah. You know, it, it that's another thing. Like, don't get me wrong. James Dean is a fantastic actor. He does not look 16 in this movie. Like, by mm. not even... Don't even give me that, oh, he could play any eight. No, he looks he looks like he's had a rough 20s. Hey, uh, hey, hey. I'm not looking through love goggles right now. We're working. All right. So maybe like 18, 19, somewhere in there. He was 24. You know, it's not that far away. Boo. 
Yeah. He he was a rough looking twenty four. He was not a rough looking um, twenty four. I'm just saying. It's no. also kinda creepy when he when he's coming on to Natalie Wood and I'm like, bruh, that stat right there. That's ten years. No, Jimmy, no. But whatever. So moving moving on past that, the masculinity theme. We also have like Plato. Yeah. And Plato is he's coded gay, right? I think so. Because it I, in the in the movie, um, he's supposed to be portrayed as his parents. He's basically a latchkey kid. His parents yeah. aren't around at all. He's basically raised by his nanny, and that's like give affected him. He has kind of mental issue. Uh, I think when we meet him in the beginning of the movie, he's there because he shot some puppies. Yeah, we all meet the our characters in the police station. They come in for different reasons, and I think Plato's the first one that we hear and. He shot some puppies or the neighbor's puppies, and you're thinking, okay, that's on your way to becoming a serial killer. Yeah, I mean, Plato's. I I think they said because he didn't shoot him with like a like a thirty eight or whatever. No. He was he had a BB gun. Yeah. He was you know taking pot shots at this like litter of puppies or whatever in yeah. his neighbor's lawn. I think that's what it was. I'm not too sure. I watched this movie like a little bit ago from today, so the beginning of the movie is a little hazy. Yeah. But I think that's what happened with Plato. And as soon as he meets Jim, he like kind of inserts himself as his best friend right away. Well, not right away, because in the police station, that's when he first meets Jim. And Jim offers him his jacket. And he kind of just kind of like shies away from him, doesn't you know want to really have anything to do with him. And it's not until they see each other the first day of school, or Jim's first day of school, then he recognizes him. And it's just kind of like, you know, oh, who is he? I want to be his friend. I want to get to know him. He he starts doing the thing that Natalie Wood's doing and is like, oh, hello there, Mr. Mister Jim. How you doing? And I mean, we also get, you know, kind of more of a sense of who Plato is because he has a picture of Alan Ladd in his locker. Yeah, that was one of those things where it's really kind of subtle because it, I, honestly, I didn't notice that the first time I saw mm-hmm. it. Um, I only realized it when I did some research and I was like, oh, yeah, that's really weird. Mm-hmm. And then you're going in and you now like thinking about the movie again. Yeah, Plato is acting very like like gay. Like mm-hmm. he's he's fawning over Jim. He he's following him around. He is obviously obsessive about him. He it I, you have a feeling that he's at first it's like oh Jim's kind of the big brother character yeah. and he's following around like the like a little brother and he just wants to be his like best friend that's what i thought about it like the first time i watched it you know years ago but now looking at it again it's like no he wants to to jump his bones yeah and that's kind of how complex plato is because he is looking for a father figure you know because we see throughout the movie where he kind of tries to make jim and judy his parents and then at the same time he's kind of in love with jim so it's this conflict between them you know where I want family, I, I want, you know, a strong foundation, but I also want a mate. He wants to call Jim daddy for more than one reason. Oh, God, I can't believe you did that. Oh, come on, that was gold. No, so, that's horrible. So, the but that's the thing, because Plato is a very, com- I think Plato might be the most complex character in the movie, based yeah. on, like, thematic reasons, because at the end of the movie, when him and Jim are, are angry, or Jim Jim's trying to get the gun from Plato, because yeah. Plato got a gun, because... You know, he wants to go protect Jim because the bullies are after him. And 
Plato throws him off of him and says, you're not my dad, and runs away. Yeah. Even though the scene before, we have um, Plato basically acting like the kid of Jim and Judy. Judy. And it's very, very interesting. It's like Plato is obsessive with trying to find a place he belongs. Yeah. He wants to find a place where he fits in, which is kind of what all these characters are looking for. Jim feels like his parents don't understand him. They don't know what he's talking about, mm-hmm. so he doesn't feel like he belongs at home. The kids at school want to, you know, beat him up because he's the new guy. No, no. They don't want to beat him up because he's the new guy. Well, well I mean, because they he got into a game of chicken and had the friend die, but whatever. You, you know what I mean. And then Judy, she's... Uh, like the beginning of the movie, her dad calls her a tramp or something because she yeah, runs away yeah. because her dad's um, basically saying she's growing up too fast and she's you know looks like you know all slutty for wearing tight nineteen fifty sweaters. That and she was wearing red lipstick and I guess he wiped it off or slapped her. Yeah. Something he called he wipes the lipstick off her and calls her a tramp. We we don't see this in the movie, but this is what she's telling the detective at the police station. And she runs away because she's like, I wanna grow up, I wanna be an adult. I'm tired of my parents looking at me like a little like a little kid. And But Plato's... also at the same time, they're not treating her like a little kid. It's you know, oh you're an adult. We don't really need to hug you or kiss you anymore. Yeah. And it's... so it's this kind of struggle of I do want to be an adult. I am transitioning into an adult, but I still want that love and affection from my family. It, it's the thing where her parents are treating her like an ad- or giving her all the uh, the bad parts about being an adult, but not letting her explore the good parts about being an adult. Yeah. Because um, she's still... And that's why she's running away. She's trying to grow up but she can't because she feels restrained by the parental figures in her in her life yeah and plato he has no parental figures he is alone except except for his um his his house, nanny his nanny which he's like 16 and he has a nanny well i mean it's a house you still need someone that can you know well like make clean me- and whatever make meals for him and make sure that you know i he- think it's the thing where the connotation of a nanny i i feel is is different because my idea of a nanny is you take care of like five six year olds but when your kid hits like like basically when your kid hits puberty you don't need a nanny anymore your kid could like cook for himself grant i was a latchkey kid so there you go yeah but you know when dad has been gone for who knows how long mom's you know wherever she is you do need an adult in the house his parents are still married right they're just they're just never at the house no they're divorced are they divorced i'm pretty sure because in one of in the scenes leading up to the climax of the movie um the the gang that's after jim they they find you know jim's address through plato's address book and he runs into the house to get his mother's gun and on the way he finds you know a letter that falls off the bedside table and it's from his dad to his mother and she's thinking he's thinking you know oh my dad finally wrote to us and it's just you know uh, a child support check you know, uh, you know, that's you know, right. for, you know, our son, you know, $600. And it's just like, again, you know, that's kind of depressing when it just says our son doesn't even put his name on it. Yeah. So, but yeah, there's a thing. And Plato feels like he doesn't belong because his parents legitimately don't, don't like take care of him. He has no support system. Well, really? Well, no. When you see that all the support you have is, you know, you're just a dollar figure. Yeah. You're, you're not really valued as a person. You're valued as a, a $500, $600 expense I have to make every month until you age out. Yeah. And so that's the thing. Each one of these characters have the same sort of motivation as to why they 
want to run away. They want to, you know, leave. And then we have this whole underpinning of, like, the sexuality of these characters yeah. kind of coming to light. Um, Jim is, you know, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, all-American boy. Judy's fine going for that. Judy wants to grow up. And mm-hmm. easiest way, I guess the easiest way for a 1955 person to say I'm an adult is to go and, you know, get, get some tail. Judy is like, I'm an adult. Jim's fine. What's up? And Plato's over here being like, he's coming into himself and he's kind of realizing that he might not be like the other boys in his in his class. And it, it's very interesting. This movie has a lot of interesting things going on in it. Yeah. The whole aspect of teenage rebellion, like the loneliness of being of being a teenager, not under people not understanding you. Sexuality. Sexuality, all the whole acceptance. Acceptance. Building your own family unit mm-hmm. out of your friends. Yeah. Which I think all these are like very interesting, very valid. This movie I feel aged very well. Yeah. Um, granted, I feel some people will probably take, I do think people would take offense to Plato's characterization as a gay character. I don't think so, because I think he's still unsure of it himself. You know, the feeling's there, but he's not really a hundred percent, you know, am I, am I not? I probably am, but you know, this is all the, also the fifties where, where this wasn't accepted and where he could have been murdered. And, you know, speaking of this. Salminio was gay, and he was murdered in the 70s. Really? Yeah, he was murdered behind his apartment building. Yeah. Was but, it like a was it like a hate crime thing, or did somebody like mug him, or? I'm not sure. I, it, it kind of falls in line with the the whole you know tragedy of this movie. How you know all the the main characters died tragic deaths. Yeah, like so, Jim, like um, James J- Dean died in a, in car, a car accident. accident. Natalie Wood was drowned. Drowned, possibly murdered. I mean, like, the only person who knows what happened is Christopher Walken, and he and, ain't talking. And Robert Wagner. Is Robert Wagner still alive? Yeah, I believe so. Oh, well, there you go. We got two people who might know what happens, but as long yeah. as one of them is alive, I guess the, the one who did it ain't gonna say. So, it kind of falls in line with the tragedy, you know? And people are trying to say it's not cursed, but it's kind of... Well, the three leads, yeah. like, died, but granted, everybody else in the movie lived generally pretty long lives and had pretty good careers after yeah because people try to tie dennis hopper into this tragedy thing because i guess when he caught cancer it was very fast and i think he only survived like six months after but i i don't think his falls in line with the, the tragedy that the three well leads. the other thing is he he died in the 2000s i think he did but so he lived at least 50 years past this movie, he basically brought in the new Hollywood regime with um, Easy Rider. He had a very long and illustrious career, uh, you know, because hashtag Dennis Hopper. Well, um, well, they're trying to tie yeah. it in because, you know, of the conflict that he had with Nicholas Ray over Natalie Wood. Because uh, before filming, I think Nicholas Ray and Natalie Wood, they started an affair. Which, you know, at the time, he was in his 40s and she was 16, so that's kind of... Super illegal. Super illegal. But I guess when, like, pre-production and filming started, she started going on dates with Dennis Hopper. And How old was Dennis Hopper? I think more around her age range. What, like 18, 19? Somewhere in there. Okay. So, Nicholas Ray found out about this, and he was incredibly jealous, and the two of them were, I guess, ready to come to blows over her. And um, I, he wanted to fire her, and Warner Brothers was like, you know what? 
he's under contract. You can't fire him. He's part of this film. So I think he cut down all his lines, and I think he has, like, one line in the movie. I think so. He's, like, one or two lines. It's really weird when you watch the movie because he's in a lot of the yeah, movie. Yeah, he is. And he doesn't say anything. I, I think his character's name... Is his character's name Moose? Is that it? Um, let's see. Or is that see. the other one? I think Moose is the other one. Uh, where's Dennis Hopper? He's Goon. Goon. Uh, God, your, your friend's names are Moose and Goon. You're obviously growing up to be a bully. But... Yeah, like he's and just, crunch. And, oh, got Jesus crunch. You got buzz. But yeah, he because he, he's in a lot of the movie and he doesn't say anything. He's like he's almost a glorified extra, and yeah. then he has like one line. Yeah, and it's really weird because you think about it, and Dennis Hopper. I don't think at the time he was famous. I don't. I don't think he you know did a lot of movies no. in the fifties. But when the sixties, seventies finally roll around, like he explodes. Oh yeah. Like he becomes one of the cultural icons of the of the new Hollywood, yeah. Which is weird because he does like Easy Rider. He did the Roger Corman flicks, and people are like, "This guy, he just knows." But really, he's on a shit ton of LSD during the sixties and seventies. <laughs> I have the I have the book about um, the new Hollywood thing, and he is an interesting. He had an interesting sixties and seventies very weird i mean again yeah. it was the 60s and 70s it is what you do it was an experience but yeah and the it's, it's just interesting but yeah there's a lot of like interesting themes of this movie i think it still holds up to to a to an extent the only thing i think might be weird is is plato but then again i i feel like he is such a in, integral part of understanding the movie yeah like it it's it's and it's really well done. Yeah. So yeah. I like how you're saying yeah, like like I'm coming to a realization about like you know my life experiences. No, this is just a really good movie. It's nice to see you coming to this epiphany. No, I've always had this opinion. I've always had the opinion that the movie's great. It's just the themes around the movie. I've never like really thought them out. No, well, I never had the reason to. This yeah. wasn't this wasn't a movie I watched a lot. I'm again the first time I watched it was because you said hey, this is my favorite movie. You should watch it. And then I watched it. And then I was well, like, it's pretty good. Well, let me, you know, tell people the truth about that because it wasn't, hey, this is my favorite movie. Watch it. This, you know, you, we watched each other's favorite movies right before we started dating. We were kind of in that talking phase. And you're like, you know what? I think before we take the next step, we got to watch each other's favorite movies. I don't think I said that. You did. Yeah, I might have said that. I don't yeah. know. I No, I, you, I, you I did. I run my relationships like they're a romantic comedy. It only works out so well, boys. Yeah, so yeah. Dean told me, you know, hey, before you know, we get into a relationship, we gotta watch each other's favorite movies. And I knew his was Back to the Future. Yeah. And I think because a lot of people have seen Back to the Future, I've certainly seen it. I love Back to the Future. You're like, you gotta watch my other favorite movie, The Room by Tommy Wiseau. Oh, wait a minute. I know for a fact I didn't tell you to do that. So this is, ex yes, I remember exactly you did. what happened. It wasn't, oh, before we started dating, like, let, we should watch each other's favorite movies. It was, no, no, this is what it was. It was, man, I really, you know, I think I was, we were at Rialto Cafe. We were. It was, in, it's, some, it's this place in Fullerton that does breakfast and stuff. But really I, good breakfast. Yeah, but I'd have, like, the patty melt and the Coke. So. So weird. Sitting there, we're eating, and I think I was talking to Susie, one of our, our mutual friends, about, like, the she room. She introduced us to each other. Yeah, I was talking to her about the room, and that, yeah, I got a signed copy of the room or whatever, because at, like, a convention or something like that i met tom so really cool guy really short but super cool 
and you were like, oh, yeah, you like the movie? I'm like, yeah, no, it's really fun. I really enjoy the movie. I think it's, like, really funny. It's weird. It's super bad. And you're like, oh, okay. And then you went and you watched it because it was free on YouTube. No. And then you were no. like, you told me about it. I'm like, oh, my God, did you like it? And we just, like, talked about it for, like, eh, like I don't know, the hour before class. Like, that was the when you watched The Room and we talked about it. I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then you're like, yeah, my favorite movie is, you know, this, you know. And then I watched it. It wasn't, hey, before we take the next step of our relationship, you should probably watch each other's favorite movie to see if we're compatible. That that was not the conversation. That totally was 100% the conversation. 100% not the conversation. You're also the one that tells people that when we met each other, it was straight out of Casablanca to, to the point where the world we were living in turned sepia for the five, ten minutes that we first met. So... Well, you know, we met at a train station. So before, you know, before we get into this spiral, we watched each other's favorite movies, and I thought it was funny that The Room tied into Rebel Without a Cause because we have Tommy in the movie that, you know, does James Dean. You're tearing me apart, Lisa. You totally stole that from me. I was just going to do it. Well, yeah, but I get to the point. (sighs) No, you don't. I don't. But yeah, well, it's actually funny because Tom Wiseau, he watched The Room, or sorry, he watched Rebel Without a Cause yeah. while he was writing The Room, and he was obsessed with James Dean, he was, he was obsessed with that 1950s melodrama, Yeah, and that's kind of why The Room feels so weird to modern eyes, because I think it was shot in like 2003. Yeah. But when you watch it, you start realizing that it's, it's a bad movie, but it's bad because it's trying to play a 1950s melodrama with all the weird over-the-top acting that doesn't play anymore. And also the fact that the talent in that movie is not A-tier by any means. And Tommy Wiseau, I think, wrote the movie in like a night. Actually, I think he wrote a 500-page novel and then adapted that into a screenplay in like a night. I mean, Rebel was a 17-page treatment, so... Yeah. You know, it had some... A little bit of filler to it. Yeah, there's a little bit of filler yeah, to Rebel. Yeah, just, just a little bit. Yeah, you probably cut, like, 20 minutes off this movie, and you still get still get the point. Mm, no, I think you need every piece in this movie. You just want more James Dean. Of course. Oh, uh, yeah. But yeah, but that's, like, the thing. The, the It was interesting that they tied into each other. Yeah. But, Yes, Rebel Without a Cause. That's why I watched it for the first time. Because you were like, this is my favorite movie. I'm like, okay, I'll watch it. And then we talked about it. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And then you subjected me to the room. And you're like, I'm like, okay, you know, where can I find this? And you're like, oh, you can find it on YouTube. And I had to watch a cover or a a copy of this on YouTube that had a, a commentary track underneath it with two guys eating soup. It was weird, but it also helped the movie in a way. So... Any riff yeah. track of the room helps the movie. Yeah. So yeah, ladies and gentlemen, you know that's uh, that's that's that. That's how me and Boo started exchanging movies for the first time. This is this podcast has basically uh, is basically just an adaptation of our weekends. So. And our crazy relationship. I love you too. So that's the the interesting bits, and then let's get back to Roll Without a Cause real quick before we start winding down here. So, is there any big bits about Rebel Without a Cause you wanted to jump on? Because I know we talked about the acting, we talked about the actors, we talked about the themes in the movie. Is there any bits of trivia? Any bits of oh, I mean, scenes you want to jump in? I mean, there's tons of trivia. That you can keep it under, like, six days? 
really, you want to talk about somebody that talks nonstop? Boo. I uh, would, you know, you uh-huh. go ahead. Uh-huh. I mean, I think the only problem I was having, I just watched the movie last night again to kind of, you know, give me a little refresher mm. for today's episode. But every time I've watched the movie, I, you know, I think of the movie. I don't think of any other things that contribute to the movie. But last night I kept thinking about La La Land. Just throughout the movie, it just kept popping up in my head because they were both shot at Griffith Observatory. Yeah. And so I just kept, you know, seeing different parts of that movie and this movie, which I was kind of like, no, because I love coming into this movie. and You like the... coming into the movie essentially blind and kind of absorbing Yeah, it. I, I really love enjoying that. But I love that it's an L.A. movie, which is, you know, a big thing for me on the podcast because I love going to filming locations. So... You know, all of this is basically in L.A., except for some of the scenes that were shot at Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, Griffith Observatory, which is beautiful, by the way. I haven't been there since I was a baby. Mm. But it's always fun if we go to, like, events in Hollywood. You just see it right off the 101. Oh, yeah. And it's it's pretty high up in the hills. You can can see it from the streets if you're in the right part of L.A. You can see it. So we have that. Uh, Dawson High School is actually Santa Monica High School. Is it Santa Monica? Mm-hmm. Hmm. So it's, you know, cool to see different parts of L.A. featured through this movie. The interiors were shot at John Marshall High School in Silver Lake. And I think my favorite thing that I found, you know, trivia-wise, I didn't even know about this until I was doing research for the movie, mm-hmm. the pool that they play in at the end of the towards the end of the movie oh in the abandoned house yeah the abandoned house it always looked kind of familiar to me but i just thought you know oh it's another pool that's the same pool from sunset boulevard where they find william holden really yeah really yeah wait sunset boulevard was filmed in was sunset boulevard filmed in 55 it was filmed oh I, i wrote this down somewhere i think it was filmed in 54 Where was it? Where was it? Sorry, guys. I have like seven pages of notes. Oh, 1950. 1950. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. It was filmed in 1950 at the Getty Mansion. Oh, it was in the Getty? The I'm... Getty Mansion. Oh, okay, okay. The Getty Mansion was in um, was on Irving Boulevard in downtown LA, which got torn down, I think, maybe a year after Rebel came out. So, now mm. it's just like another skyscraper. Yeah, okay. But, but yeah, Sunset Boulevard has a tie-in with Rebel Without a Cause. You just really love that, don't you? I love both movies, yeah. Yeah, they're very good. Man, we should watch Sunset Boulevard. Believe me, I have to look at our schedule, but that's going to be one of my picks. But yeah, no, if, I had to, if I were to throw out a little interesting tidbit about the movie or something cool I like about this movie, honestly, it, has, it still has to be, like, just the amount of effort James Dean put into mm-hmm. this role because you know he was method he did a lot of research for it i think did he did he actually go to like a high school and like like talk to teenagers to help study learn for the role i feel like that's a thing he did no uh what they did was they um they hired on somebody that was considered a gang member in the 50s from... when you're a jet you're a jet kind of gang member kind of they hired what's his name frank mazzola Mm-hmm. crunch in the movie he was uh basically a, cons- a consultant to the film because he was part of the um was it 
Armenian, Armenian gang at uh, Hollywood High School. Mm. So Nicholas Ray said, you know, hey, I want you to come in and basically teach our actors, our extras, what it's like to kind of be in a gang. And I've seen like in the documentaries where they talk to him, he's like, we weren't really a gang. We were just like a group of friends. We were like a club. So it'd be like, you know, you'd see people from other high schools come over and it's like, you know, no, this is kind of our turf. But he did teach them, you know, hey, if you if you're going to do like a knife fight, this is how you hold the knife. This is how you talk. Mm. This is how you act. So we did have that. I did find something in my research yesterday that I had never heard of. But I guess it's true. Which is rare as hell. Which is very rare for this movie. So Nicholas Ray, when he was, you know, looking for extras to be, you know, like part of Buzz's gang, he had between 300 and 500, like, supporting actors come in and physically fight each other to see, you know, who's the toughest. And I guess this massive brawl, people got, like, really hurt, cars Mm -hmm. got damaged, and it was just, like, Thunderdome. And <laughs> two men enter, one man leaves. Yeah, two men enter, one man leaves. And some people that like worked on the film were like, "Yeah, this whole fight breaks out between you know like five hundred people." And so I was like, "Man, we should have been recording that." And Nicholas Ray was like, "Well, I did have my camera, but I forgot to bring my film for the camera." So it was just like, so we could have probably seen like a, probably a lot of soon to be famous actors get yeah. into a rumble in a in a studio backlot. A full on rumble. Which I thought was like, that's pretty crazy. And then you gotta think about it, you're just like did did Dennis how many people did Dennis Hopper brain over the head to get his part? Apparently a lot. Jesus Christ. So Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I know you, you really like uh James Dean's method acting. Yes. I'm I'm very interested in method actors and, and things like that because it's just it it's weird because i'm very aware that they're not who they are they're yeah. acting you know it's all pretend but it's interesting when you see like a good method actor um especially this early like brando is a great example daniel uh, day lewis daniel day lewis yeah daniel day lewis is a more modern example mm-hmm. um where there's just so much work involved there's a lot of like detail oriented behavior there's a lot of little things they do that all goes for the same conceited purpose of basically playing imagination. Yeah. And it's very interesting. The amount of intensity a lot of these guys go to is insane. I know for one of Brando's earlier earlier roles when he was playing a paraplegic where he um he was stuck in a in a wheelchair. Yeah. He refused to walk mm-hmm. while he was on set. He would like roll around in his wheelchair or he would like throw himself off his wheelchair and army crawl mm-hmm. to like concession stands or something. Yeah. Which is, one, that's just, I wonder if that's just Brando being Brando and just trying to annoy people on set. Because that's, look, boo, he ordered how much champagne and ham to the set of Mutiny on the on the Isle? Hey, you or know. Mutiny on the Bounty? Champagne's good, but tons of ham? I don't fault him there. Yeah, there you go. But, you know, it, it's, it's just interesting. And I think it's interesting that, you know, James Dean, he did that for this movie. And it's all good. I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the acting. I really enjoyed the method. Yeah, because, I mean, his method acting is so strong in this movie that when they do, like, the knife uh, the knife fight between him and Buzz... Is it real knives? I think that was it, a thing. It's real knives. The, the two of them both had to wear, like, a chain link underneath their shirts to protect them. Mm-hmm. But during the filming, I guess he got a cut... Jimmy got a cut on his ear from the blade. And Nicholas Ray was like, cut, cut, you know, he got, you know, got injured. And Jimmy yelled at him and he's like, you, you don't stop me when I'm having a real moment. 
He goes, you let me go through. I don't care if I'm bleeding. I don't care if I'm dying. Let me finish the scene. I so, knew about that because you can actually see in the knife fight scene that his ear is cut. Yeah. I think that shot actually made it in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, because I was, I was watching and I'm like, wait a minute. And I had to roll back and I was mm-hmm. looking and I'm like, oh no, like he actually got, he actually got cut and I had to look it up. And yeah, that was a real knife fight. Yeah, so it's really cool that he used to go above and beyond for his roles, embody these characters. I mean, another cool thing is, I guess after this movie came out, t-shirt sales just skyrocketed because that was like the new fashion trend, just mm-hmm. white t-shirt and jeans, which was so simple. Well, yeah, that was the well, that was the thing with the style back then. And, you know, it's it's interest it's interesting. This movie has has made a is a touchstone both in like film and fashion and like maybe like the um the lex emotional lexicon of teenagers because this is one of those movies that probably oh. works a lot better if i was in high school yeah frank uh frank mazzola was part of the athenians the athenians the Athen- not the armenians the athenians okay oh okay okay yeah so like i just wanted to redact that no no problem I don't know if uh, we'll get calls from a bunch of, like, 80-year-old gang members being like, we'll call the Athenians now. We'll call the Athenians. They come over here and Yeah, if they called, they'd be like, can I talk to you guys? Can I interview you guys? They'd be like, hey, you know, are you my granddaughter? Sure. Right. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. But, and, I mean, this movie has just, you know, really lasted through time. It's not one of these movies that... Just kind of, you forgot about it, even though this movie was supposed to be a B-film for Warner Brothers. Really? Yeah. This seems like a movie that that had, like, a lot of, like, moolah behind it to oh, be a B-movie. No. no, no, no. This was intended to be a B-movie. Uh, it was originally shot in black and white. They got, like, a couple scenes out in black and white. But at the time, uh, Warner Brothers had signed um, a contract with CinemaScope. Mm. And they, they started filming... And I think Nicholas Ray's big gripe was with CinemaScope, you really had to fill in the frame. Mm. So he was just like, what the hell am I going to put in the frame to kind of fill out the image of what I'm trying to show, what I'm trying to convey? And when they, I guess they were doing like, you know, reviews of the test footage that they shot, they said, hey, you know, you didn't read our contract through. CinemaScope said all of our pictures have to be done in color. Mm. So they had to go back. They had to change out all the costumes, everything, because... This turned into a color movie. Yeah, it turned into a color movie like three days into production. Yeah, so it turned into, you know, color on film and, you know, I love black and white movies. They're interesting, but after seeing this movie, I don't think it could be a black and white movie. No, well, I I don't think it couldn't anymore because the amount of color in the film that plays a, a role in the story, I don't think you could do it in black and white anymore predominantly red yes a lot of it is red you know the color of passion the color of anger anger um, like heavy emotion and when jim's wearing that red um teamster jacket jacket, it's it's interesting because he's it's another thing that puts him away from everybody else in the frame because he's the only one wearing this red this bright red yeah because we have the kids as judy calls them and they're all you know in their black leather jackets leather jackets the the white t-shirts yeah so we have them it's only really the girls that kind of stick out with the different colors Mm -hmm. but even under the the leather jacket like buzz who jim does the chicky run with he's got a yellow t-shirt on so we do have pops of color throughout the movie 
but between our three stars in the movie, they all at least at one point were red. Yeah. Because I think Jim's first day of school, I don't know if he has a red tie. Um, There's a red something. A red something. Judy, when we first meet her, she's wearing a red coat. Uh, Play-Doh at the very end, he's wearing the blue and red sock. Yeah. Which, by the way, wasn't scripted. He was, like, I guess, maybe in a rush. And he just put on two different colored socks. Two different wrong socks. So when you see them reacting and laughing, that is because they didn't know that he was going to come with mismatched socks. Okay. All right. Well, I wonder, I think, but I'm pretty sure that was Rebel Without a Cause. That was Rebel Without a Cause, which was nominated for three Oscars. Best film, best actor, best script? Uh, Best supporting, best supporting actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, uh, best motion picture story. And Mm. then Jimmy was nominated for um, best actor, posthumous. The first posthumous. Posthumous. Posthumous, thank you. Posthumous award to ever happen in Oscar history. Really? Yeah. He actually got two, because he got nominated for Giant, too. So it was back-to-back years. Hmm, that's impressive. Yeah, so he was only alive for East of Eden coming out, because he died in 55. So Rebel came out a month after he died, Mm -hmm. and then Giant came out the next year. So he really only got to see the fame from... For, like, one movie. For one movie, yeah. It's interesting that he had that much of an impact for only three movies because i can't think of many other actors that have made that much of an impact on the craft on i guess the audience the public with so few credits yeah i mean because there's there's actors where it's like like arnold schwarzenegger who has become a cultural icon he is you know he's a pop cultural icon like he levied his movie roles to becoming a governor of california and yeah people remember him for like predator conan terminator but you guys people forget he had a lot of movies he was in a lot of films other than the four or the three or four you remember jingle all the way jingle all the way kindergarten cop you know twins twins with Anna devito Mm. yeah and that's kind of interesting where when you think about it uh you know, there's some actors who we only remember them for a few roles, but they were in the business for a long time. James Dean was in the business for a very short time, and then every movie he was in was a banger. It was a banger, but also his death helped him become a legend. Well, it was the Marilyn Monroe effect. You know, people yeah. can't people can't get sick of you if you leave early, and with with him dying so young and so like, tragically, so too. tragically, you know, the Marilyn Monroe thing where. You only remember them immortalized as the the beautiful, perfect image they were when they died. Marilyn Monroe, when she died, she was only, like, what, 30-something? Yeah. And she was still, you know, a beautiful woman. Yeah. So we never saw Marilyn Monroe, like, age or change or whatever. No. She died, you know. Beautiful. She died beautiful. James Dean, we never saw him in a, in a bad role. We never saw his career take a downturn. We never saw him, you know... Oh, you know, he was great in the fifties, but the seventies came, the sixties came in, and he just ended up doing TV roles. Then he died. We never saw, we never saw a downward trend on him. So we only saw like perfect roles. Yeah, that's the thing with with Brando. He had you know great roles: Streetcar Named Desire, The Godfather, The Wild One, The Wild Ones. He, you know, he was in all these great movies. But then you see movies like 
Oh, that's old Brando. That's on to Dr. Moreau Apocalypse Brando. Now. Well, okay, Apocalypse Now is fantastic. Yeah. But I'm talking, like, then there's the other movies that Brando was in where it's like, you know, oh, on to Dr. Moreau, where it's like, it's Brando, but he's, you can tell he's not, he's not Brando anymore. He's just, you know, it's not the best work. We, we see the downward trend of him, and yeah. then, you know, when he dies, he's old. He's He doesn't look like Brando anymore. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at, where James Dean, he was immortalized yeah. when he died. And that's the legacy of Rebel Without a Cause. So, I would highly recommend anybody to go and watch this. This movie was definitely an A-plus pick. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, Boo, is there anything you want to let the people know where they can find us, hear about us, watch some more of us while I go let my cat out of the room? Cause yeah, because he is something. chewing through that door. Yeah. Get it, Charlie. So if you want to follow us on social media, you could find us at the Film Club Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you are listening to us on right now, we are currently available on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, just about anywhere that you could find a podcast. What about you? Do you want to plug in your other channels? Absolutely. You can also find me on two other podcasts that I do with my buddy David. Uh, those are the Double Feature Podcast and the Too Obscure for TV Podcast. You can find those both on all the podcast sites the Boo just listed. You can also find them on the Instagram page, Double Feature underscore podcast, and on the YouTube channel, In The Frame. And, yeah, all that stuff is, is there. Do you want to spoil next week's episode, or do you want to keep that a surprise? You know... I like how you're trying to save me here because I was going back and forth on what next week episodes was going to be because I'm not, I wasn't sure because I'm the privilege of the movie right before Valentine's Day. And I think I want a nice romantic film. Okay. A movie that, you know, speaks to me. Maybe not a movie this old, but a movie that's still kind of old. I'm thinking we're going to watch the classic Harold and Maude. And I've never seen this film before. And also this conversation about, you know, deciding on Harold and Maude. Dean was also, hey, I need to, you know, find a movie where I can one-up your pick. So it's like... So, well, I, I was going to even... do the the one Utsman thing because, oh, coming-of-age movies, like Stand By Me is the greatest coming-of-age story of all time. Whatever, come at me, bro. But, you know, Harold and Maude is just, like, a good movie. It's very good. It's one of the prototypical new Hollywood films that is really forgotten about. Um, it's a Hal Ashby flick. It's it's really good. The soundtrack's fun. I think you'll enjoy it. All right, so be prepared next week. We're watching Harold and Maude, and you'll see what else we pick for the month of February. It's not a themed month, but we are kind of trying to stick around, you know, love, romance, and somewhere in the tones of our movies. We try our best. We try. So we'll see you next week at the Film Club. Peace. <laughs>